And if you'd open your Bible to uh, John chapter 21, we're going to be reading there as we, um, we, we did not turn our attention to the state of the church last week, but we're, we're going to do that this morning. We're going to be reading from John chapter 21, and I'll, uh, I'll explain a little bit more about uh, the, the, my sentimentality for this text in just a moment, but, uh, but we're going to read and then we're going to pray. So uh, let's, let's read from John chapter 21, starting in verse 1. The scripture says, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. Or as it's said in the old King James, it says, I go a-fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred years off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to open your word and to read it. And we thank you that, that when we, as the scripture says, open our mouths wide, you fill them. We thank you that you sustain us with your word. And we pray that, that we would pay attention to, to your command and instruction in scripture that we are not to live by bread alone. That's the deception that we face every single day that food is what is necessary to sustain life when we're called to live by every 
word from the word of God. And so we pray that we would feed ourselves not only physically, but that we would make use of that spiritual food which you have put on the table for us. Father, I pray that we would be challenged by the example of Jesus and that having heard it and believed it and received it, that we would then go and work out our faith, that we would would work out our salvation with fear and trembling, obeying your commandments and walking in the way in which you have told us to. Father, not because we seek to earn your affection, but because of the greatness of it. Because you are good, may we walk in the way of your commandments. We pray that you would speak to us now in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, you guys got to hear my my mentor preach last week in this pulpit. If you haven't, it is posted at our uh, effective and updated website. Uh, I'm thankful for that. You can can listen to that message there. Uh, But the first time I ever heard Mike Greiner preach, it was in a little tiny church in a town called Media, Pennsylvania. And, uh, and if you noticed last week, Pastor Mike probably walked all the way to that speaker at one point and, and back to that speaker and then back to the pulpit. There, there might be a, a slight groove in the, in the carpet from where he was walking back and forth. He, uh, he, he's, a, he's a mover, but the platform that he spoke on was just about six feet. And, and so he was like, you know, like a pinball moving around. Um, and this was the text that he chose for his, his sermon. He knew that we were coming. We doubled the population of the church that morning. Uh, the, the church thought that a revival had broken out, you know, when these, when these eight people showed up to hear this young guy preach. And, and, and they were like, oh, do you live in the neighborhood? And we're like, no, we're here to hear that guy. You know, and they're like, oh. But so Mike read this story and he preached on this text, the story of the great catch of fish. This is not the first time that this happened. This happened in in the uh, the early days of Jesus' ministry when he was calling the disciples. He, He told the disciples to cast the net over on the other side and there was a great catch of fish. And the, um, the, the disciples were full of wonder. Peter was cut to the heart. And he, he told Jesus, depart from me. I'm sinful and wicked. Leave, leave my presence. And Jesus called him. And so, so this is, there's kind of this, uh, this revelation of who Jesus is in this miracle. They, they realize that he's not just some person heckling from the shore, asking that perpetual question that all fishermen are asked. Did you catch anything? Um, you know, that's, that's something I, I'm sure annoys fishermen, especially when, they're, when they're, they're not doing well. When they're well, they want to be asked, and people probably don't ask them. Um, but so here's this story of the fish, the catch of fish. The disciples bring the net. Uh, they, there's, there's fish prepared. And then Jesus goes through this encounter with Peter. And there's a number of implications from this story. Uh, one that means a lot to people is that restoration is available. Peter had sinned and denied Christ three times, and three times Jesus gives Peter the opportunity to repent and to undo the sin that he sinned in repentance. So restoration is available. It's a wonderful message. Another one is that when we do what Jesus says, we often succeed. Throw the net on the other side of the boat. Before they realized it was Jesus, I wonder if they thought, yeah, that'll work right? Fish out of the left side of the boat, you know? What, what kind of, that's, this is not science, um, but, but they obey, and they, they do what Jesus commands, and, and, and something happens. I can remember Mike pointing out that, that math is good 
uh, was one application. And he said, somebody knew how to count. It was probably Matthew. It says right there in verse 11 that there were 153 fish. You know, the tax collector maybe gets in the boat and is like, you know, adding them all up. But I don't know if he was there. Um, I'm not not sure. It says two others. Maybe Matthew was there. I'm not, not sure. But that wasn't the point of the message that morning. The point of the message is this. This is what he said. And this this so unnerved me. This was such a challenge for where my mind and and heart was at the time that that I came home after spending about six hours in Red Lobster doing a first interview with him. And I told my wife, it doesn't matter where this guy gets a job. He may go to Florida. We are are moving. We we need to be near him. I, I, I had a candidate that I that I just loved. Mike was not that guy. I was was trying to get rid of his resume, but there was this candidate that I loved, and and listening to his sermons, Nancy would say, this man is obnoxious. Who is he? Get rid of him. Like, throw him away. And I was like, no, that is the guy. But but when when I met Mike and I heard these words, I thought, I thought, this is a man who who loves the Lord and who preaches God's word, and, and and I need to know that. So I tore up that other resume in my mind. This was, this was what he said. Jesus has gone to the cross by the time this story is told. Jesus has, has suffered the pain and the agony of bearing the burden of all of humanity's sins, of all the sins of all those who will come to Christ. He's taken them all upon himself, and he has suffered incredibly. And when he is raised... He is raised in a glorious body. He will say at the end of of Matthew that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. This is the most powerful man in the universe at this point. And do you see what he's doing? He's cooking breakfast for his disciples. He makes breakfast. He says, come, There's, there's food to be eaten. Come, have breakfast. That's astounding. If, if you walked into the White House, now, if, if you, you probably need an invitation, you'd need a, to be cleared by the Secret Service, or, or maybe not, depending on, on stories that have been in the news a couple of months ago. Uh, if you were to, to walk into the White House and, and, and head into the President's office and say, Hey, what's up? You know, I know it's early, but I wonder if you have a couple minutes. Do you, do you think that the president, not just this president, but any of the last presidents, do you think he'd be like, you're looking a little hungry. I want to go into the kitchen, I'll make you some eggs. Does Kim Jong-il, or whatever his name is, Kim Jong-un, does he cook breakfast for his followers? No, they're all starving to death, right? The kings of the earth do not serve their followers. They exist to be served. But this is not the way that the Lord of heaven and earth lives his life. He is a servant. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, Paul commands the church, have this mind among yourselves. This is not just a way to a better life. This is a command for the church to follow. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You are in Christ. This is his way of thinking. It is given to you by the power of the Spirit if you lay hold of it. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, 
This is who Jesus was from, from, from eternity past. He existed in the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Imagine that. This is like, this is a 100 zillion dollar bill. Existing in the form of God, absolute power. If somebody put a true, real 100 zillion, however much that is, dollar bill into your hand, you would be like, no one is getting this out of my hand. I'm taking it to the bank and I'm going to make sure it is credited to my account. I want to see all those zeros. I want it. I want it. And then I'm going to go home. I'm going to change all my banking passwords because no one is getting that money from me. That is a thing to be held on to. Jesus existed in the form of God, but he did not count equality with God something to be held on to because of his incredible humility. He emptied himself. He took the form of a servant and was born in likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. We're glad that that whole serving humanity thing is out of the way, right? Jesus is like, man, you know, that was really hard, acting like I wasn't God, you know, being humble and serving everybody. Good thing I'm resurrected now. Absolute divine power is, is, is given to me, and I can do anything I want. I have all authority. Now things are going to change. It's not what he does. He's like, time to make breakfast. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? I think that we tend to not think of God as humble. But he is. 2 Corinthians 8.9 says this, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus, who knew no sin, left heaven and became poor. He, he humbled himself, not in mind, but in character. He laid aside his use of his divine prerogatives. He could do anything, create anything, call 10,000 angels, turn bread into stone. But he said, I will live in submission to the Father and in the power of the Spirit. He laid aside those divine prerogatives, became poor, that we who were poor in righteousness might benefit from his sacrifice on our behalf. By his poverty, we can become rich. The God of the Bible, the Lord Jesus Christ, is a God who serves. He serves. There's a story in Matthew chapter 20 where the brothers, actually the mom of the brothers, an opportunistic mom seeing an opening, comes to Jesus and says, Hey, Jesus, would you do something for me? And Jesus says, What? She says, In your kingdom, will you grant it to my two boys to sit on your right hand and your left hand. I wonder if she had chosen favorites and said, this guy sits on your right hand, the good hand, and then second class hand is where the other guy sits. You know, she chosen. And, and Jesus then looks to the brothers and says, can you drink the cup I'm about to drink? Do you deserve to sit next to me on thrones? Jesus deserves to sit on a throne because he came to this earth and drank the cup of the sin of humanity. 
He who knew no sin took all sin upon himself. And he was humiliated on the cross. So much so that he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Bearing the sins of humanity for those six or so hours on the cross. Can you drink the cup I'm about to drink? And they say, yes, we can. They have no idea what they're saying. Jesus says, you will drink my cup. You will suffer in this life. You will give it all following me. But God is the one who determines who sits on thrones. The other disciples hear that that they have have made a play for for the, the thrones on either side of Jesus in the kingdom. And it says that when they heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. That's 24 of Matthew 20. But Jesus called them to him, and this is what he said. Verse 25, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. When you become a ruler among Gentiles, when when you're a ruler out in the nations, you hold on to your power and you use it. You are at the top of the organizational pyramid and those underneath you serve you. The rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. Your job is this, now do it. And your job is that, now do it. Do what you are told, because I'm Caesar, I'm the king, I'm the ruler. Verse 26, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus is the most highly exalted, not because he is the first and most wonderful of all beings primarily, but because as a man, he lowered himself to the, to the lowest place and served all. And that means that those who serve most are the ones who will be most highly exalted in his kingdom. Our devotion to Jesus, our response to his grace, our acknowledgement of what God is doing in our hearts through the gospel, the tale is told in how we serve. Matthew 25 speaks about what will happen when judgment comes. And Jesus is is speaking about dividing the nations into sheep and goats. The the sheep are on one side and the goats are on the other. The goats will be sent off into eternal judgment and the sheep will be kept because he is the the shepherd of the sheep. He's, He's splitting up all peoples, all nations. Now listen to what it says. But he's, he's, he's gone through judging those who he's going to keep. And then he says this in verse 25. Then he will say to those on his left. Okay, so we're on, we're on this side if we're, if we're using stage left, right? Uh, or Keith's left. I'm not sure which left we're using. We're using Keith's left. He will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you, did not serve you? 
if we had known it was you, if we saw you, you know, you're the guy with the beard and the long hair and the red sash and the white robe in sandals. If we saw you, we'd have helped you. We didn't, we didn't know. Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these. Remember, this is all the people of all the nations. As you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The king says to those who did respond, who did serve, who did help, he says to those, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. What did they do? How did their faith express itself in action? They loved the Lord their God with all their heart and soul and mind and strength, and they loved their neighbor as themselves. They fed those who were hungry. They gave water to those who were thirsty. They were hospitable to strangers. They clothed the naked, helped the sick, and visited those who were in prison. Those, that's not an exhaustive list of things that need to be done, but they are examples of the church, of God's people serving those who are in need with the love of God. First with the gospel message, but then by doing good to them as their neighbors. What does Paul say to the church? Titus 3, 1. Remind them, Titus, remind them, pastor, to be ready for every good work. Get ready. Jesus is a God who serves, and his people, the people who are following after him, are ready to serve. They are ready for every good work. Galatians 6, 10 kind of expands the, the scope here. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good. Do you see that, that verb there? Let us do, the verb let do. That is the word serve. Let us serve everyone. Let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Yes, take care of the church, particularly take care of the church, but take care of all. Make sure that we serve. What is the mission of the church? To serve the world with the gospel and to bring the message of the gospel to all who do not know it. And as we do that, to serve and to help them. There is no, I think, real distinction to be made. Some people will say, well, should the church go and dig wells or preach the gospel? I say, go preach the gospel, and while you're doing it, dig wells. Good for you. Do good to everyone. It is, is it good to have clean water? Absolutely. The problem is so often the, the, the doing of the, the digging of the well is easy and people say, yes, thank you for the well. And when you preach the gospel, they say, no, thank you for the gospel. And so we, we shift into well digging and not gospel preaching because the world hates the preaching of the gospel. Those, those who do not know Christ, those who are not his own, hate the message that they're lost in their sins and need a savior. What we need to do as the church is to strike the balance. Now, I want to I shift just for a moment here because I, I want to kind of, speaking about the state of the church, I want to lay something out on the table and, and talk about what we're going to do about it. Uh, that is the mission of the church, to, to make disciples, right? 
to go, to baptize, to teach. It is also the mission of the church to be witnesses, to start at Jerusalem and to, and to spread out and to take the gospel to the uttermost ends of the earth. There's another great commission. There's, there's actually five of them, I believe, in, in the gospels. There's, there's a bunch of different ones. You can find one at the end of each gospel and, and one, Acts 1.8, at the beginning of the book of Acts. The one in the Gospel of John is this, John 20, 21. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. How did Jesus come? Jesus came as a servant. He came to do the will of the one who sent him. He came to do the work that the Father gave him. And that is what the church is called to do. To do the work that we have been given to do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith, and to preach the gospel to all creation. That is the mission of the church. What is the mission of the pastor or the mission of the pastors? Ephesians 4.11 says that God gave the apostles, he gave the prophets, the evangelists, the, shepherd and the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints, to equip the saints, to, to get the saints ready, to get them what they need, to get them their equipment. That is equipping, right? If you are going to need a parachute in 10 minutes, the person who is equipping you is saying, here are the parachutes. And if he's not saying, here are the parachutes, he is not doing his job, right? We, we want a guy who's reliable if the job is to hand out parachutes. And you want to make sure that you get your parachute while you're on the ground. Don't get it, you know, uh, 10,000 feet, especially if you're flying into combat territory. The, the, the mission is to equip the saints. That's the mission of the pastor. The mission of the pastor is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And that word right there, ministry, is serving. For the building up of the body of Christ. And that's to go on until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. I believe what's, what's meant there by, by the knowledge of the Son of God is that knowledge we will have of Jesus when we see him standing before him. When, when we are in his presence and we know him, we, we say, you're our Savior and we're like you. This is to go on until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's the mission of the pastor. Now in the Bible, in Acts chapter 6, there's a, a time when the, the mission of the pastor, the mission of the elders comes under fire. It, it, is, uh, it, is, it is at risk. There's a crisis that, that, that seems to draw away from the, the, the ministry of the word, of the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. And, and the church could have, could have gone either direction here. This is Acts chapter 6. If you flip over there or go there on your phone, you know, use your, use your thumb or, 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 or flipping. Um, Acts chapter 6 verse 1, it says this, in the days when the disciples were increasing in numbers. So this is a period of, of church growth. Good things are happening. People are coming. People are hearing. Um, this is not a, a time of, of decline. Uh, something happened. And this often happens when things are going well. Uh, there was a problem. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. The church believed in serving. The church had a ministry of making sure that widows got fed. But here's, here's what's going on. The, the Jews who live in Jerusalem, who live around the temple, right, they speak Hebrew. 
And, and that's the language that they use. And then there are those Jews which they call Hellenists. And they're from the wider Greek world and they speak Greek. And now what's happening is that, that the guys who are in charge or the people who are distributing food are making sure, in, in the, or maybe just by neglect, they're, they're handing out food to the, Jew, to the Hebrew-speaking widows, but the widows who speak Greek are being neglected. And so there's this complaint. There's a, a racial distinction in the church. There's, there's a problem. The, the inequity of, of one group being preferred to the other is leading to a spiritual division within the church. This is a huge problem. The complaint comes to the leadership. And the 12, these are, these are uh, Peter, John, the, the elders, the apostles. The 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and they said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the, the word of God to serve tables. It's not that serving tables isn't good. It's that the function of the elders, of the apostles, is to preach the word of God. And so they say it's not good that we leave aside this ministry and engage this ministry. Because what happens when you dig wells and serve tables instead of preaching the word of God? You, you lose the preaching of the word of God. This happens. It's happened over and over again. Just read church history and you will see it. Therefore, they say, brothers, pick out from you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The leadership hears the complaint. They see and identify the problem. They propose the solution and they give the solution to the people to carry out. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them, and the word of God continued to increase. Oh, this is so good, the problem is solved. The difficulty goes away because they put the right men, the right leaders in place. There was a spiritual division because of inequality and inequity. It was an internal matter that the church was struggling with. The, the leadership saw the problem and they, they proposed a solution and they were not the solution because the ministry of the word and of prayer was the top priority. As the ministry of the word and prayer goes, so goes the church. But the church must make sure that it deals with its physical and, 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 and infrastructure problems so that all are treated well. And so that, that those who have needs see those needs addressed and that ministries thrive. The leaders bring the solution, but the people solve the problem. And what's the result? We see in verse 5 that everyone is happy. And then in verse 7, that the word of God continues to increase and the number of disciples multiplies greatly. I see several kinds of serving here. There's the, there's the group of spiritual people who are needed to handle a physical need that was causing stress and division. There's the service of giving. There are some who are, who are making sure that, that this food ministry, this distribution ministry is funded. There's the service of planning and the service of administration, of, of distributing the food. And then there is the service of, of the church in leading in ministry of the word and prayer. So Mike came to do the men's retreat, and he, he brought along his executive pastor, Fred, 
Um, and Fred was here to do a kind of a mini retreat with me and to, to kind of hear some of my, uh, my frustrations and struggles and to meet men and to talk to them and to find out uh, what they were, were like and to assess the condition of the church and then to say, here's what you need to do. Uh, and Fred confirmed with me something that I knew was a problem for a long time. The primary problem in getting ministries running in our church right now is me. I'm the problem. And here's the problem. The problem is is that there is a need to delegate and to give away and that, that people will then receive those things and administrate. That, that they'll say, I, I see the need for this ministry to roll forward and I will do it. And then the problem is that we've, we've got a limited number of people in our church and an entire population out there who needs to be reached with the gospel, who need to hear the gospel and need to choose whether to accept it or to reject it. God will call whom he's calling to himself, but we need to be faithful to get out there into the community. I believe that as our society becomes more and more electronically based, as phones and email replace face-to-face communication, that the church needs to be ready to address the fragmentation that's going on in society. Uh, Now, the elders talked about this about a year ago, uh, implementing some kind of way of connecting people and and working on that, and, and I said, yes, I will do it, and in short order, it fell apart. We never got there. But now we're, we're back and determined to, to bring a solution to this problem. And we're, we're going to do that. We're going to be uh, addressing how, how we seek to solve this problem. But when we do, we're going to need people ready and willing to serve. So when we talk about the state of the church, this morning I'm coming to you to appeal to orient your hearts to be ready and willing to serve. The ministry of service drives all the other ministries of the church. The heart that is ready and willing to serve, to lay aside time to serve, is at the heart of a successful church, of a ministry that is, that is getting the gospel out to where it needs to go and then, and then making clear to people how to move forward in spiritual growth. Think about the ministry of worship. When we come to corporate worship, someone must be willing to serve. Someone must lead and play and work the soundboard. And there are some who will care for kids. And there are some who will count money. And there are some who get up early and come here and make coffee. And you come in and you say, there is coffee. And it is good. But somebody served. Think about the ministry of, of, well, we'll put prayer aside for just a second. Think about the ministry of evangelism. Someone must be willing to go and to serve others by risking and speaking. And some must be willing to serve by planning and saying, here's how we're going to train people to share their faith. Because that's one of the reasons, uh, aside from the spiritual reason of intimidation, this is one of the reasons why people don't share their faith. They say, what do I say? People need to be trained and then they need to be encouraged to go. The ministry of discipleship, someone must set aside time to train and then some must set aside time to serve others by saying, let's meet for coffee or let's meet for breakfast or let's meet for study and let us walk through a process together. Some must serve. The ministry of teaching, someone must study and pray and teach. 
And that's not just the pastor. If we're going to have a church that, that thrives and creates places for connection in small groups, someone must study and pray and plan for teaching to happen. I think the ministry of prayer is instructive. Time must be set aside Requests and needs assessed. Needs need to be managed. Requests need to be remembered. They need to be passed on. But it's in prayer that we open up our hearts and we appeal to God that he would serve us. That he would meet our needs. We knock and seek and ask, like the scripture says, we come before God and we say, unless you work, all that we do is for nothing. What does Jesus say to Peter when he's washing Peter's feet? Peter says, you will never wash my feet. You're never going to serve me. And Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. In order to be in the church, we must be served by our Savior as he washes us clean from our sins and grafts us into the vine and fills us with the ability to do everything. What, is, what does Paul say? Paul says that in Christ we can do all things. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. In prayer, we learn the importance of being served. We see opportunities to serve, and then we ask for strength, and then we go and serve. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul addressing the, this factional controversy in the Corinthian church. Some follow Apollos, some follow Paul. Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 3, 5, What then is Apollos? What is, what is Paul anyway? Servants through whom you believed. Servants through whom you believe, as the Lord assigned to each. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. God is the one doing the work. Paul is the one preaching. Apollos comes in behind Paul and, and finishes the deal. Um, verse 7, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants... And he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. If you are a Christian, and the Spirit of God is in you, and he is if you are a Christian, then you are God's tool. You are God's means. You are you are intended by God to serve others in the service of him that you might accomplish the task of bringing God's kingdom into existence. God has a mission and a vision. God is going to be God of his people. He has a vision of a, of a heavenly city where he dwells with his people and he walks. And we have a mission and a destination as a church. And Jesus says, when he commissions the church, as the Father has sent me, so I send you in service. So I want to call you to work as servants. I'm going to be calling leaders, concerned parties together. You'll get an email from this if you're on our email list. If you're not, go to our website, sign up for email announcements. If you're not on the list, you can write your email on a connection card. Shame on you if you didn't do it and drop it in the offering plate. But... No shame. It's all good. Write it down and hand it to me on your way out. Just be like, here's my email. Um, 
I want to call you to work as servants because as we work as leaders to to build a way of, of coordinating, there's going to be a call to people to work as servants in ministries. And I want to call you to work hard as servants. I'm going to quote Spurgeon here. Um, You might be like, hey, you said, I'm quoting Spurgeon, but hey, I am saying. This is what Spurgeon says. He says, I wish I could put my meaning into words that would burn their way into your hearts. I hope I've already accomplished that, but I'm, I'm bringing out Spurgeon here. I want every member of this church to be a worker. We do not want any drones. He's so bold. If there are any of you who want to eat and drink and do nothing, there are plenty of places elsewhere you can do. There are empty pews about in abundance. Go and fill them, for we do not want you. Wow, isn't he bold? I'm not saying that. He's (laughs) Every Christian who is not a bee is a wasp. The most quarrelsome persons are the most useless. And they who are the most happy and peaceable are generally those who are doing most for Christ. We are not saved by working, but by grace. But because we are saved, we desire to be the instruments of bringing others to Jesus. I would stir you all up to help in this work. Old men, young men, and you, my sisters, and all of you, according to your gifts and experience, I want to make you feel... Brother Bruce read this in the pulpit a couple months ago, and it just, I, I walked up to him and I said, hand me that quote. It just, it impressed me. This is, this is what Bruce read. I want to stir you up. I want to make you feel I cannot do much, but I can help. I cannot preach, but I can help. I cannot pray in public, but I can help. I cannot give much money away, but I can help. I cannot officiate as an elder or a deacon, but I can help. I cannot shine as a bright particular star, but I can help. I cannot stand alone to serve my master, but I can help. I want to call you to work as servants. Because the truth is, no person on their own has all the gifting necessary to make the church work. Except the head, the Lord Jesus Christ. If any one singular person possessed all the gifts, and he does, what he would do is he would give them away to his body. And that's what Jesus does. And so I want to call you to work as servants. If you are a leader in this church, if you have responsibility over anything, I want to urge you to make time to learn specifically about how we're going to try to coordinate everything to serve. I want to call certain among you to think about serving by administrating. Specifically, I think the church needs about four to six people who can spend some time, about four hours a week in the office each week. Yeah, that eliminates a bunch of you. Some of you are like, I'm working. I know, I, I'm working too. Um, but, but some of you have free time. Can you help? If you can, let me know. I want to urge some of you to think about leading and serving something that you're passionate today. It was warm today. It might have been a little bit too warm in here for some, um, but but it's warm today because because George Tillman has endured hours of working with the people who repair our, our heating. 
to get things working again, to get new thermostats installed. Somebody, Brian Orr, put up the wire molding so that when you guys walked in here, you weren't like, what are all those wires? Think about leading. And then when people lead and say, would you please follow, think about serving by following. Think about helping to plan events, to participate when someone says, we're going to have an outreach. Think about showing up when people say, we're going to paint walls. Some of you can, can't lead a small group, but your home is good, and so you can open the door to a leader. Some of you can lead, but your home isn't good right now to, to invite a small group in. Think about participating, and then let someone know, and make sure they write it down. Don't just say, I'm thinking about this, and they're like, oh, that's great. You know, make sure that they, that they hand it in. Some of you have got passions, and you want to change the world. Let's be realistic, okay? You're not going to do it on your own with your passion. But let's be realistic. The Bible says that the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God which animates and brings life to a dead, lost sinner when God's word is preached, the Spirit of God which created the world, the Spirit of God which empowered the Lord Jesus is in you. And when you are connected to the church, working through the church, the world will change. I want to sum up by saying there is a, there's a pastor out there right now who's calling on his people to give him a certain amount of money so he can get a, a jet, right? Uh, I don't need a jet right now. <laughs> I could think of a bunch of other things I need, but that's not what we're talking about. Uh, here, here's the promise and the appeal. So many people want to be part of something that will make them rich. And so they're told, if you sow a seed of faith and give me $100 and help me get $61 million so I can get my own jet, God will repay you by sowing that seed of faith. I think there's abuse of a good principle there. Anytime someone says, if you give me this money, God will do this, right? I don't, I don't like when people say, if we install these Thermostats, for example, will save money. I'm like, don't say that because then two years from now, we're going to have like the hard, we're going to have the next two hardest winters. We're not going to save any money and people are going to say, you promised, right? <laughs> but here's the, here's the principle. When, when we give time, energy, when we, when we devote ourselves and, and we fail in the world's eyes, God does not forget. There is a way to be rich. There is a way. This is a guarantee, okay? You write this down and talk to me on the last day and I will be smiling because I will have been right. All right? What is the best way to be rich? Paul tells Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, 8, I hope I've got you sufficiently worried, conservative people. <laughs> Some of you are like, we might be leaving this church based on what he says next. 1 Timothy 6, 18, Paul says, to instruct people that they are to do good and to be rich in good works. That is the best way. 
You, you, I was listening to a, to a radio show the other day where they're talking about how, how the stock market has these giant rooms. They're the size of three football fields, and all of these computers are in there making all these, these uh, calculations per second, and they're buying and selling. And, and all, the, all the servers are, are as close as they can be to the central stock exchange server so that, so that no computer is, um, they, they all have the same length wire, so that no computer has an unfair advantage. And you know what happened in one day? Um, one day, no one knows why, but the computers just suddenly started crashing the market. They called it the, the, the digital crash or the flash crash. And to this day, they don't know why the market crashed. But you know what? Fortunes were ruined that day. Even if your money's digital, it's still where moths and rust can destroy it. Because in a blink, it can be gone. But you know what? You, you pile up good works in your account in heaven, no one's changing those numbers. Nothing will be forgotten. We're not earning our way into heaven. But, but we are preparing for heaven because only what's done for Christ is ultimately going to last. Do we work to obtain our salvation? No, salvation has been accomplished for us. Ephesians 2, 8 says this, For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Do we suffer to obtain our salvation? No, Jesus suffered to obtain our salvation. It's not a result of works. There's no boasting here. If you are saved, rejoice and be glad in the goodness of God in calling you to himself. But to proclaim salvation to the nations, and to be part of the kingdom of God, growing it out in the world, being God's fellow workers, expanding his kingdom by proclaiming the gospel. Do we suffer to obtain that? Yes, we do. It takes hard work. Ephesians 2.10 says this, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. For, why were we created? For good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So let me call you and encourage you to be the church the way God intended it. 1 Peter 4, 7, Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. The end of the world is closer than it was before this sermon began. I have, I have no word on when it's going to end. I wouldn't set a date even if I thought there was one. The end is coming. Verse 7 says, Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift. As each has received a gift. You believe in Christ, you have gifts which you are to bring to the table for the building of the kingdom. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Did you see that? Gifts are to be used in the building of the body. The building of the body includes going out into the highways and the byways and saying, Repent and believe in the Son of God who loves you and who will forgive you if you come to him and bring them into the body and then, and then serving for the health of the body. Use gifts to serve 
the building of the body. Be a good steward of the gifts God has given you and do it in a way that honors God. Verse 8, by being loving. Verse 9, by being hospitable. Verse 7, by being self-controlled. Verse 9, by being free from grumbling, but then serving. Verse 11, in the strength of God. God serves the Christian by empowering his gift that he's given to the Christian. And do it for the glory of God by lifting up Jesus. I call you to work as servants of the living God. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to hear your word. I, I pray that no one would make the mistake of, of hearing that there, that there will now be 150 things more to feel guilty about. I, I pray that you would Preserve us from the idea that to serve you will be drudgery and will be endless meetings and will be task lists. But instead, I pray that you would help us to see that, that, that when the church is functioning properly, we are dying to self and engaging the way that you have made us and the way that you have gifted us. I pray that we would see that to serve the church is not just to look inwardly and to say, how can we protect what we have? But to look out at the world and say, how do we lovingly, joyfully, carefully serve that others might come to know Christ and that all who we come into contact with will know the love of God and that those who walk away will have had a sense of what they are rejecting. We pray that we would be mindful of the distractions which, which draw us away from worshiping you in service. We pray that we would be careful to devote time and attention to how you've made us and the way that we should serve. Father, may we view you as a kind and gracious and humble God who serves, not as a tyrannical overlord who says, do this this way that I might accept you. You find nothing acceptable in us. But because of your value of us and because of your gracious work, we are made part of you. And we are able to serve. And so we, may we serve joyfully out of gratitude each and every day. Father, we pray this in the precious name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen.